Phil, there are so many great television shows and movies. That's right. Thank goodness Resonance Rewind has the team to analyze them on a personal basis, with Robin Pierce, Jenny Bill, Jessica Burtis, Alex Lefchuk, and some key additional guests from the Temporal Nexus. A man either lives life as it happens to him, meets it head-on and licks it, or he turns his back on it and starts to wither away. Am I speaking like a doctor? Or am I speaking like a bartender? Do they both get the same two kinds of customers? We'll find out in Resonance Rewind. So, there we have it. Some startling music. And is he blinking once for yes or twice for no? I don't know. Robin, would you like to actually give a blinking summation of The Menagerie? You know, I would love to, but blinking a flashing light doesn't work on the radio. So, we're going to cover The Menagerie, parts one and two. And to do my summation, I shall turn to the book of fantastic television by our sometime team member, Gary Girani. Um, The Menagerie, uh, directed, the old footage was directed by Robert Butler. Mark Daniels handled the new footage. What am I talking about? This will become apparent as the episode continues. In this two-part show, actually, the original Star Trek's only two-part show, used footage from The Cage, Star Trek's original pilot. Uh, In part one, Spock mutinies and kidnaps his former commanding officer, Captain Christopher Pike. He then sets the Enterprise on a course for Talos IV, a forbidden planet shrouded in mystery. And you get the death penalty for even going near the place. 
In part two, Spock is on trial for mutiny and abduction. He tells Captain Kirk and the prosecutor, Commander Mendez, played by Malachi Throne, the story of Captain Pike's bizarre experience on Talos IV. This episode actually won a Hugo Award, and the story of its making is as bizarre as the episode itself. <laughs> Wonderful summation there. So before we find out from Larry, who has actually met with at least one and possibly two of the directors, I, I believe, Larry, it possibly might have been Robert Butler you interviewed for one of your podcast scenarios back in, back in the day. I, I did. The man is amazing. He is still with us. And I was lucky enough, his son brought him down before COVID, the last real Comic-Con in San Diego, uh, I was able to have him down and we had a packed room and we had an hour with him. I, I interviewed him before a live audience, as they say. And that was amazing. It was just an amazing day. So, yes, it's been um, there's two or three of the cage people still with us. Sandy Gimple, who was one of the who's a stunt woman who's still working, is amazing. Uh, was just at the Michelle farewell show. But she was one. Of, she was like Telosian number three or Telosian number four. Um but yeah, it's it's amazing to think that there are still some, uh, still a few people from the cage with us. But but Absolutely. that's uh, and from the menagerie, of course, we still have Nichelle Nichols and William Shatner. So that's all good news from that point of view. But let's let's move on. Let's before we turn back to yourself, Larry. Let's turn to Kathy Mann. So Kathy, uh, from Miami, of course, uh, currently in Lincoln. Um, your thoughts on this two-part Star Trek episode? Were you familiar with it before? Was this the first time you'd actually seen it? Actually, so I've seen Star Trek before, but I've never seen these two episodes. So it was kind of, I, I got into it. At first, you know, I, I had to get back into like, okay, I remember what Star Trek is. I know the characters, let's focus. But I just was, I mean, I wasn't prepared uh, for the twist, you know, because I was just waiting. I was like, this isn't Spock. I He's doing all these crazy things. What's happening? Why is it happening this way? But definitely grabbed my attention and I definitely followed all the way through. So very happy to watch this. I seem to recall when I first saw it, Larry, back in the day, probably around about 1970-ish, thereabouts, or back mm -hmm. end of 96, possibly 69, 69, 70, uh, Ooh, when, okay. uh, of course, we, we, we first started receiving Star Trek, just when obviously it had been cancelled in the United States, uh, BBC decided to actually screen it from that point of view. And I, like Kathy, was sort of equally a little bit bemused by what was happening within this whole system and, and, and set up, because initially one thinks... Well, where are the usual crew? What's happening here? You know, we, we recognize some of these characters, etc. You might recognize, oh, it's the chap from Temple Houston, if you are familiar with Temple <laughs> Houston. As a wow. Okay. Yeah. Oh, At the time, oh, I guess so. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Uh, or, or possibly you might have thought he was, Jesus has come with that, with, with whole sort of routines from that point of view from King of Kings. Or even more, it could well be the classic line of, it's the giant from the searchers. And of course, Susan Oliver uh, was a classic. But from your own perspective, I mean, I found over the years, this is one of those episodes that really gets better and better with, repeat, with repeated viewings. There are so many quotable dialogues, so many areas where you could say, Actually, this is where they got the whole idea for the Matrix from, except, you know, as opposed to mind control, they're using computers to control our minds and our, our, our brains, etc. Um, but share with us your own thoughts and experiences with respect to uh, the menagerie as opposed to the cage, because as Robbins rightly said, this is a, 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 an interesting combination in which you could say, what a wonderful way to actually have a budget uh, package put together. But it didn't prove to be quite as easy to do as maybe Gene Roddenberry had originally thought. 
Well, yeah, I mean, this is the menagerie and the cage are one of the first pieces of, you know, I, I didn't get to it as soon as you did. I was a few, I was very much a, re, well, you were too, I guess, a rerun baby, but I was in the States and yes, you realize that something is off here. Uh, and I think even I had a gut instinct that, wow, they didn't sit down and, and uh, retro Spock's makeup and, you know, make these changes to the bridge set and, all, and the other sets. There was too much of a, of a jump there. And yeah, you don't, you don't see the old footage is Spock is the only familiar face you see. And I remember that being one of the, as you read the making of Star Trek and as you read a couple of the one or two early sources, you, that was one of the first pieces of Star Trek production lore that you understood was that the cage was the first pilot. It didn't sell, but they but the weird thing of having a the rare bit of having a second pilot commission, and then it did. They got behind schedule because they did. They were behind on scripts, and it was a, pr- creating a whole new paradigm of show in the '60s. And as a time saving, plus they had this hour film that was now unusable. They even thought about making one of those cheap theatrical movies, adding another couple of scenes. But Jeff Hunter had nothing to do with the show, so they were kind of stuck there. So this idea of taking this unable, uh, unusable pilot that the look had even changed, much less the casting, and having that be – it's perfect Star Trek for what we do now – having that be another time frame and just canonizing it and finding a way to make it fit. Not, not throwing it at the audience and saying, here, just take this, but actually you know, having it be canon. Now, they kind of do that with Where No Man. And we've kind of come up with the idea and the retcon now that was just a year before everything else we saw, which is why there's no McCoy who are in it. But yeah, that the whole thing about the cage being the pilot and the reused package and an envelope of current modern scenes shot around it for the courtroom trial and discovery at the Starbase to kick off the show. All of that being a framing device was I, I think it was unusual at the time. 60s TV would have said, well, just throw the damn pilot away and forget it. <laughs> and they were it was too expensive they invested so much and they were behind time and about to miss some of their delivery dates so it was a win-win and then we get this rich lore of canonizing you know captain pike and everybody in the earlier enterprise and of course we actually have that initial sort of sequence with uh, uh parish julie parish's character mm-hmm. of, of, of piper basically who again sort of has a, a sort of a slight flirtation with Kirk, but that's all, all. I mean, it's not really a right. Kirk sort of centered show. It kind of works beyond that whole sort of sequence, and it's very much a, I right. suppose, the first. Is it the first Spock centered show? Arguably, Naked Time possibly could take that could take that scenario, but um, it does sort of right. focus on 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 the character of Spock. I'm trying, and, and these are aired out of order, and I don't have my aired order up. But you know, Galileo Seven was rather Spock centric, and it's yeah. in, it's yeah. right in, it's either right before this or right after, so it's getting there. Malachi Throne also that plays Kamara Mendez in the original pilot had been the voice. You know, they used women, they used small women for the Telosians. In fact, um, a couple of them were ballet dancers. They, um, but they used Malachi Throne's voice, male voice, for the Keeper, the main Telosian. And then when he plays Mendez, they had to go back and redub, um, which you know, is the voice of the keeper to avoid if, the confusion. If people are confused, if they have the the DVD box set and they think on the trailer for this episode, why does mm-hmm. the keeper sound so much deeper than actually in the episode? It's because it's mm-hmm. the voice of Malachi Throne that we actually hear dubbing Meg Wiley uh, and her particular aspect within that. Okay, let's turn to Jenny. Uh, Jenny, um, your thoughts on this particular. Uh, two-parter, as Larry is very 
uh, eloquently described it then, a wraparound episode. We would not have seen the cage because it was deemed to be far too cerebral for a poor, uh, strange, uh, sub-literate sort of folk in television land and so on. Um, how did you find that this stands up over half a century later? I absolutely, I love The Cage. It is one of my, not The Cage, sorry. Well, both The Cage and The Menagerie. Um, they're both uh, two of my favourite Star Trek episodes. I only very, I mean, I obviously saw this when I was very young and I've seen these episodes so many times that I forget. I don't watch it thinking, oh, what's happening? Because I know what's happening. I just enjoy watching every moment of it. I absolutely love Susan Oliver to bits when she was in The Girl with the Green Eyes. I mean, I've always, my whole life, I wanted to be either Barbie or Susan Oliver. And she's, and I've seen her when she's older in some of the, like Twilight Zone and stuff like that. And she just looks the same, but older. She's still amazing. And, um, I just love the whole episode. I love everything about it. I know it's got some little flaws here and there, but um, you know, what hasn't? <laughs> and the music, I love the music. I bought the, the music uh, for this specifically because I really liked it. Um, Alexander yeah, Courage, I think, certainly knocks the uh, the proverbial yeah. uh, thing out of the park with respect to, to the, the ethos that we've got here. But you mentioned music, of course, and uh, Pamela Suman is back with us. So good to see you as ever, Pamela. Uh, you've already sort of said you must feature the operatic Star Trek theme again on this one. So we will be doing that in a few moments. But I suspect that rather like Kathy, you might also be a newbie to this particular incarnation of Star Trek, the original series. So what did you make of it? Well, I really am. And I, I just wish there were more hours in the day and that my internet was much better. <laughs> because I've had a very frustrating time trying to get through these two with the internet because it keeps, it keeps like not working. Um, but I would say that it's masterful, you know, and every time I become more and more introduced to the world of Star Trek, I realize why people devote their lives to it and why it is <laughs> such a cult. Um, the everything to me is just so masterful. And at the same time, with whilst even the costuming and the, and the makeup, it, you could call dated, it's just iconic. And it has to be, it has to be, because it's one of those things where it would probably be many people's fantasy to just, you know, blink their eyes and end up on the Starship Enterprise in with all those <laughs> characters at that time period with those problems as frightening as they were. It's just a wonderful world. It's an incredible world. And the music, I was thinking how perfect the music was. The, uh, you know, the, I, I don't know that this is necessarily true, but it seems to me that they were ahead of their time in terms of what to put musically into the episodes that actually helped with the, the drama and the suspense without noticing the music. Music doesn't hit you over the head, but it really helps with the emotion, helps with the mm -hmm. psychology of what's going on. Um, just these long tones and these different sounds and the use of it is so brilliant. So thank you, Jean Roddenberry. And, and um, I'm so <laughs> glad that I am now kind of a, becoming a Trekkie. <laughs> oh. Yeah, it, it works well at uh, that sort of Trekkie Trekker scenario. Again, I have to sort of admit another 
uh, special memory for this of, or for me personally, with respect to the cage is um, I was privileged, I think in 1982, to actually see for the first time ever at that stage, the original cage pilot, which Gene Roddenberry had actually brought over to the United Kingdom. He screened it at a convention in Newcastle. And that was the time I actually did meet the Great Brother of the Galaxy. So it kind of connects from thence. And, and again, I think we, we sort of see that, that resonation that comes through within that. Larry, you said you've spoken to, to Robert Butler. Um, I think in certain instances, he's gone on record as saying that clearly, although he was invited to come back and do the direction of the two episodes, he basically felt that he'd already done what he had to do in the cage. So therefore, got, although he gets the credit for the second one, Mark Daniels effectively had to pick up the production chores with respect to that. Gene Kuhn, obviously, involved as well. Robert Justman, likewise. Um, did you feel that there was a sense that actually he appreciated just how much of a legacy he kind of put together in 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 that original Star Trek thing? Or, was, or does he still view it as, well, it was a job? He's, yeah, he's one of those people that hasn't, uh, that came to their Star Trek affiliation modern day of the appreciation of fans he's one that came to it late because he did a whole he directed the pilot of batman the 60s batman he did all the, he did several iconic shows he became known as a pilot's director but that didn't stop him from doing it and he did some features too but um he yeah he had that attitude it's like well they wanted him to do the second pilot and he said no that's okay been there done that and he really did not appreciate it until 10 15 years ago and he you know he's not been a staple on the Convent, no, directors aren't that way anyway. Most of the directors, they even if they come to appreciate what they've done and they've got a huge body of work like with Star Trek, they do appreciate they do. And part of the problem is conventions and promoters won't they won't pay money to directors because they're not seen to have the star appeal. That's part of what I do, what I do, because <laughs> because a lot of these people they may get interviewed, but like see them and hear them and you know, and all that talk. So it's been part of the it's not just that he's wanting to talk now. It's the fact that he's uh, in his 80s and is still with us and in good stead. And his son is supporting him, you know, getting out and doing things. So that's been a double. It's almost like you've come full circle uh, and you just appreciate the fact that anybody. But, yeah, he's very bemused and amused at the fact that of all the work he's done, it's Star Trek. And he, but he also is very self-deprecating. He remembers like it's a pilot. So there was it wasn't just go do an episode. It was all those original creative decisions. And he talks about how he was convinced that Star Trek was a horrible title. And Trek sounded like it was drudgery, like it was like, you know, the, you know, prisoners marching to whatever wartime, you know, sentence prison they're going. You know, he was convinced that it sounded dreary and drudgery and it was uplifting and he was trying to get him to change the name. And he said, well, I was obviously wrong on that one. And I was probably wrong on a lot of other things, but he didn't really take said he didn't take credit for anything that most of what he directed was in the script. Um, so, I mean, I'm sure that there were some creative decisions he did that now we think of as iconic, but he was, you know, he was very humble. He wasn't one of these Johnny come lately. Oh yes. And by the way, I invented the transporter. I mean, you know, that was he didn't try to take away from any of that. He just was talking about how he was trying to keep up with Gene and deliver a good product that wasn't going to get him a black mark that the next job wouldn't come along for. And he he wasn't even a big sci-fi fan. He was like, okay, well, some of it was a little crazy, but hey, I went with it and we made it work. Yeah. Uh inventing the transporter. That's not a bad little legacy to actually have owned a thought. Uh but Robin, very much clearly Gene. I just pulled that out of the air because that was obviously something that, you know, 
was a, was a solution Gene came up with. This, this is true indeed, a, a way of actually getting the crew to the planet and back again without having the necessary sound uh, special effects of having to land the spaceship and so on. Um, actually, I'll turn to Robin in a few seconds because one of the key things that I see here is uh, the characters of Boyce and uh, the uh, Chris Pike and their interaction. It prefigures and foreshadows so much of what we see latterly with respect to Kirk and uh, McCoy. Again, you can see the, the beginnings of that relationship. And again, big question. Doctors, bartenders, both getting the same kind of customer. Um, it kind of is, is something which maybe you could see part of this in, in Forbidden Planet and so on, uh, or you would have probably seen it in, in certain family-based shows. But for, for science fiction, it was quite a step to actually have that kind of adult notion. And Pike, very much a weary, a world-weary individual. Mm -hmm. He was tired. He wanted to give it all up. He basically wasn't just going to take a rest leave. He was going to resign. Well, just real quickly, all when they brought Anson Mount and Captain Pike back for Discovery, that was a revelation. And, you know, people immediately fell in love with that to the point where now the public demanded a new series. And that's what's coming down the pike with with uh, with Strange New World. But what I kept getting back, what, what hit me when I first went back to see Menagerie and the Cage um, after the announcement of all that happening, him coming to Discovery and then the spinoff, was we really don't see, this was a pilot, and had this been a series, and if Jed Hunter stood, stuck around, um, we really only said, I mean, Pike is depressed at the beginning, and he's dreary, but it's like an initial point of entry for the character. By the end of the show, there's the ha-ha joke on the bridge moment, and Pike is a little more lighter. And so I think if we'd had the, you know, if we think, oh my god, Pike was so depressive, how do you do a show around that? But he I, that was the arc of that episode. And had we got back to I mean, that that last scene is where we really see Pike. So that's where Anson Mount, I think, really had that that starting point to come from. You know what I mean? Well, I think we forget that um, when we look at that aspect of it. Very much so. And it's something we'll come back to when we look at Anson Mount's incarnation of Pike. Uh, well, actually, it's not Anson Mount. It's Anson Mount's incarnation of Pike next next uh, next time around. Robin. Um, from your own perspective, you've heard what the panel have actually said so far. Are you sort of going to come bring us crashing down and said, that's it. There's nowhere we can actually push this any further. Good grief. No. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, where do I start? You know, like <laughs> Alex, I, I saw my first episodes of Star Trek back in about 69, 70, when the BBC put it on the, the old Doctor Who um, sort of, place on Saturday night. It, I found it interesting, but it didn't really take. I was about nine, ten years old at the time. It was in my teens that I really block capitals, bold, underlined, got it. And I spent most of my teens grabbing any books or anything I could get on Star Trek. And I was, you know, making of Star Trek and the James Blish novelizations, little short stories. But um, it was when I was 18 that I actually saw The Menagerie because as the 70s dragged on, the BBC would show it early evening on Monday nights. Um, I live in Wales. We had alternative programming of Welsh current affairs. Shoot me now. <laughs> so we, we rarely saw them come round on the rotation. And it was, yeah, 1978 when I first saw The Menagerie. But I'd read a synopsis in both The Making of Star Trek and, of course, in James Blish's novelizations of The Cage. 
And, you know, two-part episodes, unless you're Batman doing them over two concurrent nights, were quite rare in those days. And I was absolutely blown away by this one because I knew a little bit about the, the production. And, you know, when, when I finally saw it and, and I knew beforehand that it was literally a creative result of an episode short, way overspent on the budget, and they came up with this elegant and riveting way of actually using back footage, I thought it was absolute genius. I mean, it's it's one of the best um, stories of of how a Star Trek episode came about, the fact that it was born of, of sheer desperation. And although there are, you know, various... Um, versions of that story the story itself is legend and when in doubt print the legend now going on to the 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 sets i love the fact that we saw both in the menagerie the flashback scenes to the cage and in where no man has gone before an evolving enterprise bridge which which kind of led me deeper into the fantasy that this was and um, you know, utilized starship that had to go back to the shop every so often to get a refit, get an upgrade, mm-hmm. and it made Star Trek the motion picture with the ret- the refitted Enterprise make even more sense. Um, you know, Spock using logic to kind of get his own point across in the courtroom sequences, the whole betrayal, but it's not a betrayal. The fact that they got the actor who was in the sort of automated wheelchair playing Pike to look vaguely like Pike might look had he been incredibly scarred, um, you know, in a, in a gamma ray. Incident. It was all just, it's, this is perfect television. It's perfect science fiction. This is Star Trek at its very, very best. The best storytelling, the best execution. I mean, forget the fact that this was made, you know, back in the 1960s. It's just incredible television that still has weight today. And the final line by the Telosians has stuck with me forever. (laughs) You know, may you find your way as pleasant. Mm Kathy, you've been listening to, to some of this side of things. Again, you were familiar with Star Trek to a certain extent. This is the first time you'd encountered this particular <clears> episode. Would you say that this is a gold standard when it comes to, to Trek? I mean, it's it's one of those things where I finished watching it and I realized I was like, I'm going to have to obviously watch this again. And I think it's one of those things where if I keep on watching it, I'm just going to find more and more to love about it because uh, there was already so much. I mean, I, I think one of the first opening lines was like, all right, then do the impossible. I was like, yeah, let's just do the impossible. <laughs> let's go for it. <laughs> and I know there's just so much more to take from it that, uh, you know, I'm I'm sure like in a week from now, I'll be like, yeah, I'm ready to go through this again. Let's do this. And then separated by a few months. And I'm sure by the end of the year and my fifth time of viewing, I'd be like, yeah, it's high up there. I, I love this. And we'll definitely refer this to other people. <laughs> um, Pamela, does that echo your own experience in terms of the layers and the ways in which we're unpeeling some of them? I mean, we've got more to talk about, obviously, in terms of drilling down to the characterizations and the role of women in the episode, of course, the role of number one, etc. But how have you actually... The women! Yeah. 
that is actually right you you actually you're absolutely that was the one area larry where i have to say for a long time i it still raised a smile with me when lennon nimoy does obviously have this emotive scenario of the women Amazing. A hashtag shouty spark spark. So yeah. Now don't forget also when he sees those chiming flowers, he does <laughs> actually smile. Smiles, God. Mm-hmm. Yes. He so, way overacts. He way overacts in the in the original pilot. He's way overacting. Jenny Bill, Jenny Bill, let me stop you there. That man <laughs> is a saint. You do not <laughs> criticize Leonard Nimoy when I'm around. He was a kid. He was a kid trying to find his way. But you can really see the difference, how he had really developed the character, the difference between the pilot and the, the, the menagerie episode. I think it showed how much he developed the character mm. because he reminded me in the, in, in the pilot bits, he reminded me a bit of his character in um, all the other programs. <laughs> name I can't Impossible. Yeah, that one. Oh, yeah, the other Paris. people like Jenny Bill that drove Spock to Colinar. <laughs> <laughs> this is a fair point, Robin. Indeed. Let's let's turn briefly to, to Pamela. Um, again, anything you'd like to, to add to what you've heard so far? And like Kathy, is it one that you'll be sharing possibly with the family? Oh, I'm going to insist upon it. I'm not with them right now, but uh, when I'm back and reunited, I'm, I'm going to uh, insist demand that we all watch together uh, we we just recently watched with nell and i <laughs> which is not something a lot of americans are familiar with but it is a classic in our house and so when you think about films like that and sunset boulevard and certain iconic films and television series like father ted <laughs> um, i'm really adding myself here um I find that this has joined the ranks. This is, you know, if this were a book, it would be on the shelf alongside, you know, alongside Ulysses. <laughs> um, so we're definitely going to watch okay. it. Um, and I'm definitely going to watch it again and again, because I know that there's so much inside the dialogues, the, the quotable lines, um, just the fashion, the clothing, all of it, the music uh, that I want to get deeper into. And I, I want to inhabit that world just as we did with Doctor Who I, I'd love to just inhabit it deeper I'm all. sure that the great bird of the galaxy will be very impressed to find that within the Pamela Suman household you've got Ulysses James Joyce you've got Father Ted and you've got Star Trek the cage in the menagerie it opens up early and with Nail and I of course amazing and a perfect way to actually because there's so much in the episode we still haven't talked about individual characters we haven't talked about favorite issues with respect to that so if it's okay, chaps, we're going to have a second part to this particular episode.